0: Συνταθήνες, τη 21η Απριλίου 1967. Βασιδικό διάταγμα Περί ανατολή των διατάξεων των άφρων 5, 6, 8, 10, 11, 12, 14, 18, 20, 95 και 97 του
1: συντάγματος καθόλου το That's what you would have heard on Greek radio as you woke up on Friday, April the 21st, 1967. The announcement that Greece is now governed by three colonels of the Hellenic Army.
2: I'm Bill Mollis of the HHF Greek Canadian Archives.
1: And I'm Sandra Gionis of the Hellenic Heritage Foundation. And we're the hosts of Edo Politechnio, a 50th anniversary retrospective look at the student sit-in which changed the course of Greece's history.
2: This is HHF Presents, our podcast series, Retelling Greek History from a Diaspora Perspective.
1: On today's episode, the military seizes power in Greece. What happened on that fateful day in April 1967 and the weeks that followed? How did life change for Greeks, And how did Greece change? We'll explore these questions and more on Edo Technio.
2: In previous episodes, we examined post-World War II Greece and the civil war that followed and how these conflicts really set in motion the events of our podcast. Here to help us move the story forward is Othon Anastasakis. Professor Anastasakis is a Senior Research Fellow and Director of Southeast European Studies at Oxford University. Welcome, Othon. Thank you for inviting me. The 1960s were both a hopeful and turbulent time in Greek politics. In light of that, did anyone see this military takeover coming?
3: There were rumors uh, in the sense that uh, there was so much political instability, and um, there was so much uh, political party bickering that there was discussion everybody knew that the military had uh, a very significant um, influence and position in politics. It's just that they were not expecting the middle-rank officers that eventually took over to become the dictators. They were more expecting it to come from the generals, the higher-level officers.
1: So let's talk about those middle rank officers, the colonels. We have George Papadopoulos, Nikolaos Makarezos, and Brigadier Stylianos Patakos. Who were these guys to come from the middle ranks? Had Greeks ever heard of these guys?
3: These were uh, of military officers that were uh, educated and uh, they formed their military personalities during the years of the civil war in Greece. So the anti-communist feeling was particularly prevalent in their ideological conceptions. But what they were really kind of known for was their connection with the United States. They were also educated in the U.S. as well. There was a kind of closeness with the CIA. And at the same time, their conspiratorial tactics. I mean, they were the ones that were always behind the scenes, conspiring against politics when they were not happy with it.
2: Could you tell us a little bit about IDEA and the colonel's relationship to that? Well,
3: that was a a hardcore military fraction that was actually paramilitary, it wasn't a formal one, and it was composed by those uh, middle-rank officers. And they did operate behind the scenes in a very conspiratorial kind of manner. They were fiercely anti-communists, and they were also very close to the United States uh, in the sense, you know, the CIA and those kind of um, actors. So it, it was more of a paramilitary kind of organization but which was very well known uh, by uh, Greeks at the time, uh, how they were operating and about their existence as well.
2: Take us to Friday, April 21st, 1967. What actually happened that morning? Well, Greeks woke up
3: to a military coup that was um, organized by those middle-rank officers. As I said before, the generals were much more expected to do that. So it was the political elites mostly were very surprised, even the king that was so more connected with the, uh, with the upper ranks of the military. So, yes, it's, you know, Athens and Greece were w- woke up to a kind of an, a new environment. Now, I assume that that was something pretty new for those times because um, Greece had experienced direct military intervention after the 1940s. It was more an interwar kind of experience between the two world wars. So that must have been quite a new phenomenon, I suppose. And um, the fact that they were very well organized, much better than g- generals, you know, made them kind of um, consolidate themselves to power. W- among the first things that they did was to go and um, capture the uh, leaders and, uh, and, and many other politicians.
1: And even their higher ranking military officers, how were they able to deal with them and overtake them?
3: They must have been, you know, surprised and also thinking as to how they could somehow overturn the situation. I suppose, you know, they didn't react initially. But what we saw, of course, um, um, months later, um, when they, the generals, uh, tried to organize their own coup, counter coup, rather, in December, which was a failed one. And that's when, of course, the king was in connection with them, too. We can assume that it was a surprise and um, they didn't know how to deal with it.
2: Thanks, Othon. We'll talk to you again a little later in our series.
1: We're joined by George Papadatos. We spoke to George a couple of episodes ago. He was the entertainment manager of the Trojan Horse, a well-known coffee and music house on the Danforth back in those days. He's joining us now from Athens.
2: Welcome back, George. How did you learn about the military takeover?
0: I was in Athens downtown. I was a student in you know, my third year, and the night I was working as a waiter in in a boat in Plaka. Plus, I was uh, parking cars, and I was living in a deserted house, and I'm near to near to Tsidakma Square, so I had no to pay. I didn't have to pay rent. I got up in the morning, go to have my coffee, and uh, the place was closed. And then there were some other men around. And then we saw all the tanks, the noise of the tanks going by. And then somebody opened the radio, and we heard about the marching songs. And, and there was a declaration from the radio that uh, the stay home because it's a Bush law, and articles, they start talking about how many articles of the Constitution they were uh, taken away. And that's how I learned. Friday morning, April 21st, 1967.
1: Were you afraid at that time?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was afraid because... Uh, Let's not, not forget that till then, almost till then, let's say n- till 1964, when George Papandreou took over, Greece, was almost like like a police state. Because after the civil war that ended in 1949, till 1963, 64, it was what we call the right of the winner. And since it was the right wing that beat the shit out of the, of the partisans, most of them ended up being... Several Greek islands to have a good uh, holidays, like the Makronisos, like Yaros, like Ikaria, so on and so forth. The rest of them were invited by relatives to come to Canada or the States as sponsored immigrants. The the rest of them uh, end up being in the so-called Soviet Union countries, like Romania. Bucharest was the central quarters of the communist party. Please. And so on and so forth. And all these people from the Communist Party in Romania and all these Soviet Union countries were allowed to come to Greece way after, after 1981, when uh, the Socialist Party passed took over and gave them the right to repatriate. What happened to you? What happened to me? I was arrested in 1968, uh, June, for writing slogans on the wall. There were three, four of us all together with uh, my friend Pericles Corvesis and uh, another guy. Do you recall what you wrote on the wall? Yeah, down with the Honda. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was lucky enough. I was able to escape with the help of an American girlfriend I had at the time. and She was very rich and she managed to to give some oil, as we say, lobby, to some uh, officials. So they let me go from the general quarters of, of Bubulina police station. But Chris Coroveris, obviously, was wild uh, tortured like I don't know what. And as a result of that, he wrote the famous book, uh, Anthropophila And as a result of that, Chris later was expelled from the Council of Europe. Uh,
1: yeah. So for some people, the fate was really awful.
0: Oh, yeah, for some people,
1: yeah. George went into exile, but most Greeks stayed. I'm really curious as to how dramatic a change the junta was to regular people.
2: It was quite the shock. We've had two years of upheaval since 1965, but this, this was different. We have tanks in Athens again. We have mass arrests. We have a complete disruption of political life. Uh, There's a restriction of civil liberties. We have entire political dynasties that are MIA. In the past, power in Greece was negotiated between three parties. We had the monarchy, the armed forces, and the parliament. And so the colonels had counted on the king's support. The coup's orchestrators visit the king at the Toy Palace on the morning of April 21st and ask King Constantine to declare martial law, but he refuses. And so the coup disrupts this arrangement. The king and parliament are powerless. The colonels lack legitimacy. So people were scared, people were confused.
1: How did daily life change? You know, what could you or could you not do anymore once those tanks rolled into Athens?
2: Things changed completely. The colonels, they penetrate all sections of Greek life almost immediately. Politically, they, they disbanded the parliament. They institute martial law as part of their quote-unquote nation-saving revolution. They suspended all sections of the constitution that guaranteed freedoms like freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. They forbid gatherings of more than five people. They ban anti-national propaganda and the possession of guns. And they also blacklist anyone they suspect of being a potential opponent. We see mass arrests. So we see 10,000 people arrested in the regime's first days. We see detentions in what they euphemistically term reception centers. Torture was widespread. We have stories of them ripping out people's hair and nails, (sighs) depriving prisoners of sleep and food. That's horrible. It gets worse. They left some people in small rooms, standing continuously day and night. They exposed others to sexual torture. The regime had everyone terrified.
1: From those horrific descriptions to banning how many people can gather at a time, I mean, how did people react to this?
2: They they really didn't. Uh, The myth is that the resistance began on the very first day, but this was greeted with shock. So of ye one of the main newspapers in Greece, published an article the day before on April 20th that stated seven reasons why a dictatorship wouldn't occur. Among activists, there was indecision. People were unsure whether they should go underground or stay at home, whether they should act or whether they should wait. In 1968, Melina Mercuri, the famous actress, she gave an interview in London where she said, if I had a bell, I would ring it to wake up the whole country. So we see passivity, we see fear, we see self-censorship. We also see a lot of performed conformity. I think people were were self-censoring a bit. I don't think that the conformity that we see, the lack of political action, really suggested that people were supportive of the coup.
1: Now, if you were a supporter of the Central Union Party led by George Papandreou, now I'm referring to the grandfather, and any other of Greece's leftist parties, what would have happened to you?
2: Um, they would all depend. So all the leading politicians, including Prime Minister Kanellopoulos, are arrested and they are prevented from communicating with the outside world. The director of the ESA, so this is the Greek military police, he later brags about the precision of the operation. He said that within 20 minutes, every politician, every man, every anarchist who was listed was rounded up. So Andreas Papandreou, for instance, he's quickly released on the condition that he leaves the country. George Papandreou, uh, he dies under house arrest the following year. The St. on the other hand, he was already in self-imposed exile since 1963. So the leaders of all the political dynasties are gone. Most other politicians and many of their supporters are imprisoned. Some are exiled. Uh, most are surveilled. But this was a very paranoid regime. It's led by crude dogmatists, and they see the potential for insurgency everywhere.
1: So a lot of people who had emigrated a lot of that dissent, it actually ended up here in Toronto, where we're broadcasting this from. And we'll look at that resistance more in the next episode. I don't want to be too Athens-centric in this discussion, because for many of us in the diaspora, our parents and grandparents were from rural areas, likely far from Athens. So how would Greeks in those parts of the country have experienced this military takeover?
2: The Greek countryside, it's its increasingly integrated with its cities uh, beginning in the, in the 1950s. So there were definitely some, some common experiences here. Politically, we know that surveillance, self-censorship, these extend beyond the big cities. The main prisons are, are outside of Athens, for instance, on islands like Yaros, Macronisos, Leros. Also, workers and farmers alike, they're both deprived of a political voice. We used to have these previously elected councils of trade unions and agricultural cooperatives, and they're now being led by political appointees. There are also some differences that I think merit some, uh, some discussion here. In terms of education, we know that around 2,500 primary schools are closed in remote villages. Economically, wages across the country declined by about 10% relative to GNP. But farmers' wages, on the other hand, they continue to grow. Several rural infrastructure projects are prioritized. And all this makes sense. Four of the most powerful conspirators were raised in villages and despised the old elites.
1: I remember visiting Greece in 1972, which was during the junta. I mean, I was a little kid. But what I remember was a Greece that was really different from what a lot of people who were tourists in the past 20 or 30 years would know of Greece. I remember back then in the villages, a lot of the times you didn't even have running water. You'd have to go to a be to get water to a well, or you had an outhouse. So the colonels focused on improving that infrastructure.
2: Uh, here's the thing that I think is important to note. Greece is absolutely devastated in the 1940s. It's just gone through the Second World War, an occupation, and a civil war. After the civil war, and really until 1973, we're now in an era of reconstruction. Greece's economic miracle. Greece is integrated into the capitalist West, and it shares in its economic prosperity. We see roads and houses that are being built. We see bridges and rail that are being repaired. We also have remittances from the diaspora itself that help in sustaining its villages. We have new metallurgical industries that are emerging. From 1950 to 1973, the Greek economy is improving. Poverty decreases, infrastructure is established. We're seeing some economic diversification to some degree, but Greece is still lagging behind Western European countries. It would take a lot more time to to, to rebuild, really, the, uh, the civil and economic institutions. So what
1: was the junta's role in trying to improve things?
2: That's a good question help us understand that, we welcome back Jason Novopoulos, a fellow HHF History Committee member who's working on his PhD at York
4: University. Hi, Jason. Hello, I'm very glad to be here again.
1: Jason, did the colonels improve Greece's economy and infrastructure when they were in power?
4: The dictatorship initially attempted to continue the economic model that had been adopted in the 1960s with a focus on tourism and the construction sector. In order to finance both sectors, The commercial banks of Greece provided excessive liquidity to the local Greek companies, which was supported by the Bank of Greece that was controlled by the regime. This resulted to an extreme inflation.
1: So it's really amazing that the early 70s in Greece kind of sound like the entire world today with inflation. It is indeed.
4: And it is impressive if we think that this is before the old crisis begins. In 1972, the regime attempted to control the prices by imposing a price restraint mechanism, but instead of controlling inflation, this resulted to a diminishing of production. In this way, growth growth decreased and the prices remained high. This is what we call stagflation, combination of the words stagnation and inflation.
1: So it sounds like the kernels were economic screw ups. Totally. They were uneducated,
4: they had no idea how the economy worked, and they were totally unable to effectively control, the to effectively govern the country and provide uh, economic growth for its citizens. Of course, the old crisis in, uh, that started in 1973 worsened the situation even more. By March 1974, when the junta uh, by Ioannidis had taken over, inflation was 33%. This is the type of inflation that only countries that are in war have. Actually, one of the reasons that the regime attempted to impose a coup in Cyprus was in order to divert the people's attention from these problems. And of course, we know how this ended with a tragedy of the Greek Cypriot people. Thank you so much, Jason. This was incredibly illuminating. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me here.
2: And that's it for this episode. Next week, we'll look more closely at how enemies of this new state, a junta that lasted seven years, fared during that time, from protest and resistance to being caught by the military police.
1: Bill and I are both members of the HHF's History Committee, a group of volunteers dedicated to public history projects. We hope that this podcast and the other series we've done with HHF Presents are contributing to a better understanding of our Greek heritage. To check out our other series, please go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on our website at hhf.ca.
2: To learn more about the HHF, the projects we support, or to donate, go to hhf.ca.
1: This episode was brought to you by Agape Greek Radio and edited by Stan Papoulkas. Our studio technician was Dimitri Tzohlakis. Our research lead for this episode was Irene Kritikopoulos, aided by Tina Polymenu who's also our story editor. I'm Sandra Gionis of the HHF's History Committee and a board member.
2: I'm Bill Molos of the HHF Greek Canadian Archives. Special thanks to our guests today, Oton Sastakis, George Papadatos, and Jason Rodopoulos. <laughs>
1: each episode with a song from the resistance. This week, we have another Mikis Todorakis song. He really was the voice for this resistance, wasn't
2: he? Oh, he definitely was. This one's called Tosfagio, the Slaughterhouse. The lyrics describe his imprisonment during the junta. It's dedicated to Andreas Lodakis, Todorakis' friend and a fellow member of the Lebrakis youth, who was brutally tortured. The two communicated in a code they tapped on the walls of their adjoining cells.
1: This is dos <laughs>
4: E vou...